Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. This is our third anniversary. We've now produced 41 episodes so far and we can report an amazing 108,920 downloads for our shows. I'd like to say thank you to our fantastic guests, some of whom are here tonight. Thank you for being here. To our series supporter, Parkside Architectural Tiles. And most of all, you, our audience, for helping us grow. Long may that continue. What better way to celebrate than with a live audience special here at the fabulous Rocker London Gallery in Chelsea Harbour. My name is Jeff Hayward, and I'm here with my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, creative director of Tesuto Interiors, as we try and figure out how interior designers can attract the perfect clients. For interior design projects, the perfect client is one with deep pockets and a spirit of adventure, a client who admires their designer's personal style and respects and trusts the designer's vision for their spaces. So, just how important is it for designers to have a recognisable style to attract their dream clients? And how should designers define their unique design vision and then communicate it effectively to attract those perfect clients? Welcome to the interior design business. this show, we are hugely privileged to be talking to renowned designer Susie Atkinson to find out what defines her signature style and how she keeps a steady stream of admirers beating a path to her studio door. Welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you for having me. Susie, can we begin, please, by looking at your design journey? How did you get started in interior design? How did I get started in interior design? Well, it... I didn't start an interior design, was probably the short answer to that. I actually left school and I was a chef for a couple of years, cooking in um, a city club restaurant. Um, I was the pudding chef. Um, <laughs> um, and actually, I, I loved it, but head chefs are quite feisty. And um, I got to the point where I just didn't want to be screamed at anymore. So I then left and then I worked as a PA. Um, in the city for a financial company. Well, it was actually for a sugar-broking company. Um, I was in the financial department, which was really bizarre because I wasn't even allowed to take O-level maths, GCSE maths. I was so bad with numbers. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, and it was amazing because I actually earned really good money. It was a sort of the first time left home, and I was thinking, this is, this is great. But after a couple of years, I realized that I just wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. And I, I knew there must be something else. It was all very gray to me in the city, a lot of gray suits, no green spaces. And, you know, I, I just thought this is just not for me, regardless of whether I'm being paid well. Um, and then it was my someone who's to be my future sister-in-law said, you, you should try interior design. She was working for an interior designer. Um, and it really struck up a chord. I've always been very obsessed with um, houses and interiors and that sort of thing. So I looked into different courses and I did a very short course at the Inchbold School of Design. So I did the 12-week course. Um, 
And I learned a, a bit. I don't think you can learn that much, actually, in, in 12 weeks. But, you know, it was good fun. And in those days, there was a fantastic agency um, called Jacquard who placed people in the world of design, whether it was in architectural practices or interior design practices. And I was very lucky to go for an interview with someone called Chester Jones, who I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of. Yes, He's very famous. now in his 80s, and um, he was originally one of the partners at Colfax and Fowler, um, and you know, an exceptional designer because he's an architect, an interior designer, a furniture designer, a rug designer, he can design everything, and he's brilliant, brilliant at drawing. Um, and I went for that interview and just very luckily got that job. So I started right at the bottom uh, as a junior, um, and that was, that was the sort of story, really. When did you decide to start your own practice? It sort of happened, it sort of naturally happened. So I, I worked for Chester for a couple of years and then I had my um, first child, um, went back part-time and then had another baby um, and then thought I can't go back and I just basically started working from my kitchen table and, um, you know, I, I, all I really knew is that I've got to sell something for more than I bought it. I mean, that sounds a really crude way of saying it, but I, I'm not a business person. I wasn't a business person. I wasn't trained that way. Um, but that, that's what I did. So, you know, I kept very few samples at home because I lived in a, a very small house, but I did my own bookkeeping, which was interesting, but I did manage to do the bookkeeping. Um, and I, I sort of dabbled in it really when the children were little and, and did friend, help friends with their houses and friends of friends and, and then it sort of grew um, sort of on, on its own essentially and I was then very lucky to get a break because I was approached by Nick Jones who set up Soho House and he, I'd actually done some work on their house and he said you know we've sort of half finished Shoreditch House, you've got to come and finish it and it opens by the way and six weeks so pull out all the stops well. and I was really thrown in the deep end because I thought I don't think I'm I actually don't, don't think I'm capable of doing and that and when you were one man band at this point yeah I know oh I was a one man band wow. um, and um, yeah I, I sort of had a, a friend actually who came in and helped as well and um, we just actually we just went out on buying trips it was really exciting I remember going off to Peter Jones at Sloan Square and buying all their books and all their games and Monopoly sets and jigsaw sets and because they have these all in, in the club floors, you know, they have those things. We did a lot of that and I had to buy a lot of antique furniture and design a few of the spaces that hadn't been finished. And I then continued to work for them for a few years on other sites. Amazing. Yeah. How big is your current team? I've got a team of 10 now, yeah, right. which is a really nice number, actually. It's good. We've been a little bit bigger, but it, 10 just feels nice. Comfortable. And yeah. how, how is it structured? How have you set it up? Again, we've sort of, I've sort of felt my way through the process. So I have um, somebody who looks after the accounts. Yes. Which is mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um, And I have somebody who deals with all the procurement, all the buying for projects. Um, and then I have a head designer now um, who looks, overlooks most of the projects. And then two other um, senior or mid-weight designers. Um, and then I have somebody who helps on the product side. Um, and a PA 
which is quite a new addition, which is also fantastic. So yeah, we're, and we're a very tight team, actually. We all, everybody knows what's going on on every project, and I kind of like it that way. We're not all, you're doing that and you're doing that. We're very much very a team. Yeah. Yeah, which is lovely. And um, what would you say are the key attributes of the Susie Atkinson style? It's a really tricky one. To, I'm asked that a lot, and I don't, I don't know whether my style is recognisable particularly, because I've done such different projects. Um, all I can think of when I'm designing something is if it's contemporary or if it's traditional or if it's a club or a house or a boat, I, I just want people to be able to go in and instantly think, this is just really welcoming and relaxing and there's really interesting things to look at. And yeah, I, I, I think I spend a lot of time focusing on detail um, and I hope those are things that are noticed. But are there any particular things that you would say that you build into your designs that perhaps create that warm, welcoming sense in your interiors? Getting to know your brief and your client, I think. Yeah, because I, I think with private houses, I'm very much trying to interpret someone's view of what they want in their home. Um, and I, I think the only way to do that is to involve a client. I, I, I know there are designers out there who, you know, are given a project and they're like, they want to do what they want to do and the client either wants their style or doesn't want their style. And for me, I, I don't think I would enjoy working like that. It's very much a collaboration and to work on someone's home it's their home it's not my home and so that's how I approach it is getting to know what their what their needs are and how, what their life is like and what they do like and what they don't like and then we come up with um, a one-off presentation we don't tend to do loads of options we say this is what we believe and I, I hope I've done my due diligence and really know what, what they're what they're wanting and normally it's normally it's a yes what sort of split is it between commercial and and the resi side about 50 50 yeah um and they're both very very different commercial projects to private work yeah i mean i think your interiors look they look effortless and i know that can't be true because it takes a lot of hard work to do that but it's the use of colors and textures and everything else yeah how did you evolve your style? I think, yeah, creating the right atmosphere um, and the, the welcoming vibe is all about the balance of colour and texture from my point of view. That's what I think about. So, you know, if, you're, if you've got a stone floor, then I'm thinking I need to counteract that with something that's a softer, quieter surface. So I might be wanting to bring in a lot of wood in some form or textured fabrics or something that's very slubby. I love natural materials, so I tend to go for the sort of linen, cotton, wool, silk, cashmere, stone, slate, um, timber. So it's, it's the balance of that with the colours, I think. I'm getting the sense that it's quite instinctive. It's, it's something that you do, it's not... Or do you, would you say you, it's conscious that you would say, that's something hard, therefore I need to introduce, balance it back with something soft? Or, or cool versus um, warm, or, or is it just something that's innate t to you in your sense? I think it probably is innate to me. I hate being cold. I, for some reason, I've just always hated being cold. So I'm always thinking I want to make an environment feel warm. So, 
you know, even if we're doing something very contemporary, there are ways of, um, if it's a very slick, pared-back, minimalist style, there are ways of bringing in warmth with texture and with um, more natural materials. If you don't know what your style is, when a client says, can I have the Susie Atkinson style, yeah. how do you respond? I have been asked to do what I think is the right thing for somebody's house, and then a client will step back. And that's great on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it's hard when it's someone's home because I'm not the one living there. And I'm like, you've got to have a bit of your personality. It's your house, you know, your heirlooms, your pieces of furniture that you might have inherited or that you want to keep. You know, you, you need some involvement. But, yeah, I mean, I have been given that opportunity, but I think it's nicer to have a brief. Um, but, you know, we will do anything, really, if, if somebody wants me to do what I would do in my own home, then I'm happy to do it. I get the sense, too, that on your commercial projects, you, you, you take that same warm, welcoming vibe that you introduce into your private residential projects. Mm. Is that something that you do consciously? Is it, again, going back to this idea that it's, it's, this is part of the, the essence of the Susie Atkinson style? Yeah, I, I mean, possibly, but I also think of the times, and I'm sure you've all been in that situation where you go to a hotel and there's something that is not friendly or functioning properly or it doesn't work or you don't know how to do the, don't know how to turn, you know, you want to turn off the bedside light and then it doesn't work and you've got to get out of bed or, you know, there's lots of little things that I think are, are very, hotel work is, is very different. There's a lot of different things to consider. Um, particularly with durability and, and, and functionality, practicality, um, is, is so key. Um, but yeah, I think I'm always wanting someone to open the hotel door and go, yes. Does yeah. the perfect client actually exist? I've definitely had a couple of perfect clients. Um, so yeah, I think they do. And um, what are their attributes? Their attributes are responsive in terms of feedback, which is key, involved mm -hmm. in their home. Understanding of the processes that we have to work through, and, you know, I'm often referred to as just the, the cushion fluffer, you know, the, the person who just comes and puffs a few cushions and goes, that's it, but there's such a big process that happens behind the scenes. You know, I can see the client and produce a lovely scheme for them. But then the hard work really begins, and it's so much a, um, it's managing different people, um, the makers, uh, the suppliers, um, the clients, the people on site, the electrician, the plumber, the builder, the, you know, it's so important to get on with all of those people. So, I mean, I think interior design is very much a people's business. You have to communicate um, and you have to call people, and it's something that I, probably the one thing I do sort of wrap the knuckles of the guys in the studio is like, stop sending emails, just pick up the phone, you know, if it's someone's house, have that interaction, connect with people, understand their life, they're rushing out on a school run, or they're a business person, they're going here, it helps you understand how they're living, and how you can, you know, you can then produce something that works for them. Would you agree with that, Susie? What, yeah, what, what? I was just thinking too, as you were saying, it's, it's the immediacy of the phone call, the fact that you 
get someone on the other end of the line and you can tell immediately whether you've caught them at a bad moment, whether they're stressed, you know, and, and you get much more of a sense of them as a person in their day-to-day -day lives, whereas if you only ever send the email, they can answer that, you know, in an hour or two hours or three hours and mm. you've got no idea what's gone on in the intervening period. Yeah. So it's just... But I think the phone as well is just very important with suppliers and with people on site. You know, if I come in, if we've ordered something, a rug or uh, fabrics, and I come in and I go, has that fabric come in, by the way, that I was asking about yesterday, stressing that whether we're going to be able to get something made in time. And if someone says, oh, well, I've emailed and I haven't heard back, I'm like... <laughs> Pick up phone. the phone and ring them mm. because you're going to get a response. You're going to be, and I, I know it's hard because we, I mean, I live on my phone and texting and WhatsApping and Instagram and all of that. It's great. But actually, when you're trying to get things done, you do need to talk to people and you do need to build a relationship. And I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of the same makers and craftspeople for many years. And a huge amount of effort has gone into those relationships. The suppliers are as important, and in fact, a client accused me of that. Of actually, you you take up, you look after your suppliers more than your clients. And I was like, maybe I do. No, I don't. Um, but there is some truth in that because you know my business doesn't work unless all the other people are helping me in in that process. So yes, and and if your suppliers. It, if you're loyal to them, they'll be loyal to you and they will yeah. pull the stops out when, you know... They do, you know. and when things go wrong, and they do... They fix it. Um, you know, I can ring them and say, that's fallen off the wall, or that, that's <laughs> collapsed, <laughs> you know, and they will generally, because mm -hmm. we have that relationship, they will come out and, and help quickly, which is really nice. Really good. Yeah. Obviously, you're, you're extremely client-focused in your approach. How how important is the client brief, and how do you go about actually finding out what the clients actually need, both both resi and also on the commercial side? I mean, we, we spend a lot of time with clients before we come up with anything. So you know, we'll, we'll go for initial meetings. I get them into the studio. I like them to meet the team. I like them to know that they might get an email from any one of these people. You know, it might be somebody who's sending an invoice, or it might be an assistant, or you know, I like them to to know who we all are. Um, and, yeah, I, I think, well, it's tricky to sort of be totally specific, but I, I, I think we just try to get to know them before we come up. You know, we ask a lot about their life, how they, how they use their home, you know, are they there, are they working from home, or are they going out to work every day? Are they, do they entertain a lot? Have they got young children? So, you know, all, all these facts, what do they loathe? What colours do they hate? Um, and, and, you know, what do they love? You know, what are their interests? What are their hobbies? You know, so you, you, you're building um, a friendship, actually. I mean, a lot of clients do become friends because you know them really well. I was well. just going to say, from, I can imagine from what you've just said, that the way you take a brief is very warm and kind of casual in the same way that your interiors are warm and... and welcoming. Yeah, I, I think I have to be a little bit careful about what I say, but I do think that, you know, we are in a really fun job. I mean, it's fantastic business. I love it. I could never be bored of it. You know, it's like Christmas Day. Every single day in our office, there's something arriving that we've had made and we're all like, oh, you know, let's have a quick look. And I think a lot of people take themselves too seriously in, in this business. We are 
trying to facilitate somebody having a fabulous house. Wow, that's great. And what can we do and what can we find that's different that other people don't have? It's, it's great. I don't want to be seen as unapproachable or intimidating as a designer because why? You know, we're, we're working on things that are really fun and exciting. And the more that people can be involved client-wise, the better. It's, it's good. Would you say that you can help shape the client to be perfect? No, I don't think I can shape anybody to be perfect. <laughs> I don't think anyone's perfect. I was just thinking, you know, that, that perhaps clients don't know what they want. A lot of clients don't know what they want and, and you know, we'll, we'll eke it out of them slowly, little bits. They'll give little gems away that they don't realise that they're giving away and then we'll go back to the studio and go, they mentioned that we can build on that idea. And you can guide them in the way yeah. that perhaps... steer them and take them to see yeah. things and show them things and, you know, we sketch things and show a lot of imagery and try and bring them round to an idea. Um, I mean, it's very much a collaboration, isn't it? The designer with the client, it's, you're, you're with them together on the whole journey. It, it, is, it is with private work. Commercial work, you know, we tend to be given a, a brief and, and then let go to get on with it. it there's less um, interaction with uh, commercial work, yeah. But I mean, I suppose if you've been given, you, you've given the brief and the brief constitutes, I guess, normally a budget and or probably, you know, a description of the target market first. And, uh, and an amount of money that you're allowed to spend. Yeah, you tend to I be think. given a, a budget yeah. and you have to work within that budget. And then do you do, you do research into the target market or is it, is it, again, something that you just innately understand? Yeah, we, we look into who's going to... I mean, we're, at the moment, we're working on Limewood Hotel, which is in the New Forest. And we have been for a couple of years and we, we know the type of people who might go there for the weekend. And a lot of locals also go there who live in the New Forest or... Uh, in the sailing world, um, and then obviously people go there for, for special breaks, and you know we know the sort of the age group and, and, the and what they're expecting. Yeah, and I know you. I know your your hotels are really well known. Your hotel work is really well known for for evoking a really strong sense of place too. Mm. Have you got any tricks as to how you achieve? How do you manage to get your your interiors so embedded into the into their environments? I think some are and some aren't. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking about Beaverbrook in particular, which is a, a hotel that we finished a couple of a few years ago now, actually. But um, that was a, a fabulous country house that was lived in by Lord Beaverbrook, and he during he was the equivalent of like Rupert Murdoch, but sort of during the war. And when he lived there. Um, he had an incredible amount of guests staying with him at weekends or during the week, and whether they were political figures or royalty or, um, you know, whatever it girl was it at that moment. And, and so we actually built a story and we, we called the rooms after different people who stayed there. So we've got the Elizabeth Taylor suite and the Kipling suite and, oh, um, you know, Fleming, you know, stayed there. So we had a sort of 007 you know, not theme, because you don't want it to come across as being um, a pastiche. You know, it, mm. it, we wanted it to feel sort of serious, but, you know, we had uh, information about whoever stayed in that room, within the room, and there would be some nod to that person. It wasn't sort of posters all over the walls of, 
you know, whoever. But yeah, it, it was it's fun. No, and, and I think it's really important to try and I mean, whether we're doing private work or commercial work, we spend a lot of time looking in into the area and looking for if we're doing a project out of London at the moment we're doing a project in uh, just outside Edinburgh and we've spent a lot of time trying to find makers and craftspeople within that area um, not because it's fashionable it's something that we've we have always done that and I love craft and um, you know things that are made by hand and it's part of the fun of the job is, is going to hump people down. And, you know, we, we find people who, for example, we had some steel, they look like a mirrored drum or cube table, um, which are fantastic to use in, in projects. And um, we ended up approaching a company who normally make bollards in the road, those ones that sort of pop up, um, or climbing frames in playgrounds and that sort of thing. And we said, well, look, if you can do that, could you try and make these for us um, and some lamp bases and they were like, well, no, we, we haven't really done that before but they've got the skill but they don't realise they can do it and, and now they do do it and they, they're one of our main makers, you know, and they, they're so excited that they're doing something that is, is different um, and so that it's, it's a discovery process and you can never not be learning and hunting and gathering. And is it hard to find these people? How it you, is. I mean, I have it? to say, I'm a massive fan of Instagram. I, mean, I love it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I found a lot of people on Instagram. But I also, yeah, I Google, I research, well, I your, call people. Your and wallpaper lady, she was someone you found on. You've done a collaboration, haven't you? With, with Ellen with, Merchant, yes, yeah. Yes, and beautiful pieces. Yeah, and she's very newly out of uni, and she was at Brighton. Um, yeah, and we're, we've been working with her. She posted lots of beautiful paintings of flora and fauna on Instagram and I thought they would translate really well into a wallpaper so we got her in and weirdly she was at university with my daughter which was quite strange but <laughs> and they were friends and they traveled together and I didn't know that but anyway she um, ended up doing um, some great designs and, and we came up with the color palettes and found the people who could print them and and we've just launched that collection and she's thrilled I mean it's it's fantastic for me to see somebody like that, you know, it's just very exciting to see to somebody yes. move forward with something like that. And have you ever had any disasters with people that you found? Because it must be a bit fraught sometimes. You kind of yeah, no, take a punch have. on someone and yeah, any, any horror stories plenty, you want to share with us? Yeah, plenty of things we've unwrapped and gone, uh -oh. mm, that <laughs> wasn't at all what we thought it was going to look like. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, we have um, quite a few disasters. I mean, coming up with a prototype is tricky um, and there are often things that don't work or we have to get them made again and that's expensive you know so I'm always very careful with how we design things and we really try to make sure that we've got it right chairs are particularly difficult to design and be comfortable um, but yeah we've had plenty of plenty of disasters <laughs> <laughs> you learn from your mistakes, I think, probably, is the moral to that one. But yeah. I suppose for every time you find a, a jewel, it's worth the... It's worth yeah, the absolutely, yeah. And with your commercial clients, you're sourcing lots of art and objects as well. How, mm. how does that process work? Is that straightforward? It's, it's getting harder, that process. It's, it's getting more difficult going to fairs. You know, I, I love going to antique fairs and markets and things, but 
it is getting more difficult just because everything is available to everyone because of things like Instagram. So it, it becomes harder to find places that people don't know about. Um, artists, I mean, we often place really good, well-known art, artist work in, in projects, but it's also an, another sort of passion that we also like trying to find artists or, you know, if a budget is small, um, people don't have huge budgets necessarily for artwork and, you know, we'll find a textile designer and we'll talk to her and maybe she'll, we've actually recently used um, somebody who designed gorgeous napkins, the hand block napkins, which we framed a set and, you know, they fill a, a big wall and they look absolutely fantastic. You wouldn't know they were napkins, um, but they're very inexpensive, you know, sort of £6.99 for a napkin. The framing obviously costs a lot more, but they're handmade. They look, if they're framed beautifully, um, that's another thing that is a fun challenge. It's not always about having the, the big bucks and going out and spending other people's money on nice things. You know, you've got to be careful mm. about it. If the sort of antiques are vanishing, is that because more people are buying them? Um, you know, you were sort of early into the game, and I wonder at a time when people just wanted everything new, you were putting the character back into interiors. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, there's lots of reasons. I think a, a lot of um, antique markets, as I said, are now available to everybody. It used to just very much be trade. Um, I think fashions change, and maybe there, there's less uh, less of a market for sort of the the antique as such. There's been a lot of mid-century furniture, which has been more desirable over recent years. Um, but I think as well, Brexit hasn't helped. A lot of the markets that we go to, you know, you've got people coming from all over Europe and throwing up the back of their vans and we rummage around looking for things. They're not coming over anymore, so that's certainly affected the market. And we, we just have to go further afield and mm. it's a new, a, a new challenge to, to find things, yeah. So you have your own extensive ranges of furniture and accessories. Mm. Was that a conscious decision to get involved in, in products? Um, no, it wasn't really. It was, it was more a, a case of, um, particularly for commercial project, projects, looking for pieces of furniture that we just simply couldn't find. And there, there's a sort of list of things that are always incredibly difficult to find. Um, and so we ended up designing them and having them made. And as I've mentioned before, having this relationship with suppliers and finding new people um, it's something that I really enjoy doing. So it's it sort of, you know, we were able to make prototypes, see whether they worked, and then if we're doing a, a commercial project, you know, we can get 20 made or 10 made. So that's helped. And it's just sort of grown from there, really. So it wasn't necessarily about building the Susie Atkinson brand to attract more clients? No, not really. I'm, I've never really had a, a business plan. I know. <laughs> I mean, it sounds awful. I'm sure you're really disappointed in all of you. <laughs> Not but at all. I've never had a business plan. It's just been feeling my way and, um, yeah... I th trying I think to enjoy the process, and, and why not, really? I think being that authentic and real is actually a, a great attraction, mm, bizarrely. Well, it's know, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I never... I mean, obviously, we've got to make money. We're a business. I need to be able to pay my business rates, rent, and the salaries for people. But, um, you know, it's not the, it's not the driving ambition 
to be attracting clients. I, know, I mean, I know that's the head of the tour, but that kind of seems <laughs> like quite, quite weird. You could answer that in many different ways, but um, no, it's not, in, not okay. been a conscious thing. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Soho hairstyle you kind of invented has spawned an entire industry. You know, copycat designers and, you know, Soho Home and ranges of furniture and, and everything else. How much of the that recognisable Soho House style, do you think, came from you, or have you, or did it come from, did your style come from it? Uh, yeah, I don't feel that I was necessarily um, a huge influencer of their style. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There, there was, so, I, I don't think I, I really was. I mean, there's so many people who were involved. Um, you know, I, I wasn't the architect on the projects, um, on the various sites that I've worked on. Um, but I, I think, um, for me, when I, I mean, the first proper big project I did for Soho House after Shoreditch was Soho House Berlin, which was a monumental project for me to take on at that time. I was still working at my kitchen table, actually. Um, and they gave me the, um, they gave me somebody within the organization to work with me. Um, which was great, was another girl, um, basically to do all the FF&E, everything. So if you were to turn the entire building upside down and shake it, everything that dropped out, we With had yours. to find, and obviously all the paint colours and all the rest of it. But, you know, I, I, I think for me there, I just thought, God, wow, Soho House Berlin, this is going to be... I heard Berlin's quite a wild place. <laughs> Let's let's kind of lose the any inhibitions and let's just let's just go for it and, and push the boundaries of what what I would normally do, um, which let's face it was more traditional work and you know that that's exactly what we did. We we sat down, um, Sharon, who I worked with, and, and we were like, okay, this is going to be a massive challenge, and it was. We did 40 bedroom suites wow. and many club floors and the spa and um, it was incredible. It was an, an incredible experience. It was incredibly hard work. I, How long did it take you? Um, it was about, my involvement was probably about 22 months, but it was, it was properly tough and the installation was very tough. The site meetings were always in January in a blizzard on the roof <laughs> with a hard hat and, you know, the glamorous world of interior design you just doesn't really, really exist. But um, it was, you know, and then when we installed the project, it's essentially like saying Selfridges on Oxford Street is going to become a hotel. It was it's that scale of building, in fact, probably bigger. And we came to installation day, no lifts working in the entire seven floors. And um, the installation was happening over a two-week period. The ash cloud came down. I don't know whether you all remember that. So oh, yes. I got stuck in Berlin for quite a long time. Um, and it was just, I mean, I was crawling by the end of it because we were just physically exhausted because, I, you know, I had a big team there, the Soho House team helping to put things in, but when, oh no, that bedside table was actually supposed to be in bedroom three. You it yourself. You know, you're, you're kind yeah. of, I, I didn't really know how we ended up opening, but we did. And um, 
it was it was an amazing experience and things went wrong and you know you learn as you go and actually it really really prepared me for all the other hotel work I have done because nothing was as difficult as, as that. What is your view on how you attract the perfect clients? We've had a PR company for the last um, probably three years, um, which I suppose has helped. But I, I mean, I, I think all our work has essentially been word of mouth. I mean, I don't go out to sort of attract a client. I mean, it sounds almost sort of strange, but you know, I, I, I just don't. I hope reputational, you know, work, um, word of mouth, people always want references. Um, you know, we, we do literally try to make sure our clients are happy. They, it's so important to look after them. And, and I, I think your reputation precedes you probably. And yeah, I mean, I've never sort of asked to be on the front cover of House and Garden, look at me, could you, I mean, it's just, it's not that sort of industry. So I don't know, I think it's word of mouth. It's not us consciously trying to go out to find the perfect client. Oh, I think you probably do attract the perfect client because of the, the warmth and the welcome that you offer anyone that walks into your studio, would be my suspicion. Well, ho hopefully. What is the one piece of advice you would give to any designers who would like to establish their own recognisable style to attract their perfect clients? I think if anyone's wanting to get into the business and to you know, build a client base, I think you need to have covered every aspect of the business. So even though I, you know, I, I sort of struggled at the beginning, I didn't find it easy. I had to understand how the whole thing would work. Um, and I, but I think that's really helped, and it helps then being able to explain things to clients. I think clients can get very um, upset over money things. They want everything to be very transparent. Um, we le we've learned the hard way with that. And I think, you know, y you need to know your business. You know, you really do need to know how, how things work. Would anybody like to ask Susie, any of the Susies, either of the Susies, a question? My name's Courtney. I'm from Studio Smiths, my mm. own studio with my business partner, Marianne. Um, you mentioned that you like your client to have a brief. What if they don't have a brief or they can't articulate the brief? Then I see that as um, my responsibility to somehow eke it out of them. So uh, spending time with them, just chatting, but not making them feel like they're being interviewed, do you know what I mean, like, just spending time with them, How, what, what are you, you know, what do you, what, where do you go that you like, why, why do you think you like it, what does it make you feel, and, you know, do, are you, you know, do you avoid certain colours, are there certain surfaces that you don't like touching, but, you know, I think it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a chat, but, I mean, obviously you don't want to bombard a client, but I think it's time, and, you know, maybe them taking you to places that they like might help. We've had to do that with clients rather than us saying, come here, you take us or show us something that you like. And obviously Pinterest is also quite useful because um, in some instances with some clients who don't, they can't articulate what they want. They, you know, we can get them involved in Pinterest or they might have it anyway. And then we can 
walk, you know, talk through it with them and ask why, why are you drawn to that room? What is it that you like? Um, it's that sort of approach, I think. Anybody else? Hi, Amy Dollamore from the Design Collective. Do you get some clients that, you know, they've been to Limewood, they've been to Beebrook, and they love it, and that's why they've come to you, because they then want to mm. recreate that, that sort of look? Mm. The idea of hotel as home. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, we, we're working for a client at the moment who is in the New Forest, who's been to Limewood, and they, they love it. Um, and I've been to their house, and it is completely different to Limewood. So it was... It was quite a sort of shock because I was like, well, you like Limewood, but actually it, you, what you have is not uh, not like that. So we, we've got to sort of steer them and actually it's, it's quite a challenge because, you know, you're trying to, I mean, Limewood does feel like a home. It's like, a, it, it's got that sort of country house vibe, which is what, what they wanted. Um, and I, I think that most of the rooms there and even the bar and, and the drawing them would translate very well in, in a home. Um, and, you know, the bar seems to be the most popular thing in people's houses these days. They all want a bar, even if it's a cabinet. You know, it's kind of more of an event. So I think, you know, to make somewhere feel sort of cool and sexy, I think having just one standout item like that can make all the difference, a focal point in a room. And do you find yourself still immersed creatively in the projects that you work on? Yeah, completely. It's definitely an addiction. I mean, I, I, I just really do, luckily, love my job. And I, I'm, I'm just, I feel very fortunate. And I, I, the team that I've got, they're all young and buzzy. And I, I love, you know, feeding off them and bouncing ideas around the studio. I think it's so important to bounce ideas because it gets people sort of gets their creative juices flowing otherwise you can get very uh, hemmed in and, and uh, you know you get blocks you know I mean I, I've had blocks where I think I can't I can't see how this is going to work or I'm not quite sure whether it's going to work and you know we, we all struggle with that um, mm -hmm. all creative people do don't they it's that, that sort of could it could it be a disaster? Is it going to work doing a, you know, fully brass bar with a green glass top and huge, light, whatever it might be? You know, I, I get very anxious um, before installations. Um, other people get very excited, but I'm at that point thinking, <laughs> will it all come together? I think that's quite reassuring for everybody to hear. Yeah, no, I mean, of course, it's... it's yeah, you're, you're sort of putting yourself on the line at that moment, aren't you, where, you know, it's the big reveal. and well, You're it's, exposing yourself. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's, it's really tough on commercial projects. It's really tough because they have big openings and lots of people come and, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, I, I want to sort of go into the background at that point and not... Mm. But, you know, I, and I've had negative feedback and positive feedback and you've got to sort of take it on the on the chin a bit and you know learn from why things may be received negatively um you know and i i often think that's not necessarily a bad thing at the end of the day Excellent. wise words wise words indeed mm. let's give susie a round of applause thank you
you, Susie, for a wonderful evening. That was fascinating to hear your thoughts on your own journey and how to attract the right type of client. Thank you also to Rocker for hosting us today, to our partners, Parkside, and to you, our audience, for being part of our third birthday episode. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on-demand services everywhere. We're on Instagram at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production. <laughs>